Hey, welcome to the Metal Detecting Show, episode number eight. My name is Kieran, and this week I talk about bottle hunting and response and recovery. We have our regular tech timeout, and of course, some news from the world of metal detecting and treasure hunting. So let's get on with the show. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast. We're at episode number eight, can you believe it? And according to Chartable, we have hit 102 in the US podcast charts for hobbies. So, if I could ask a favour, could you tell all your friends and help us break through the 100 mark? If you could even tell one person, that would be awesome and would really help this podcast stay alive and well. Also, if you want to give me feedback or interact with the show, and I hope you do, please reach out to me on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. Or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran, that's C-I-A-R-A-N at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. Hey, I got out again this week, back to the same spot as last week, the site of a US Air Force World War I seaplane base and a pier from 1830. And as I discussed last week on the show, my plan was to grid the beach in approximately 20 to 30 meter square grids. However, when I got down to the site, the high tide dictated that my grid, in fact, be a 1.5 meter by 20 meter strip, which actually after the fact was perfect. I hit the beach with my CTX 3030 and a 6 inch coil to ensure I could get between the trash and whittle out any good finds of which I knew there would be very few. So over the next 90 minutes I recovered approximately 56 finds of which 3 were spendies and 3 were iron concreted covered clad coins and the rest were trash which would be a normal return rate for me. You can see the pictures of my find on Instagram at the metal detecting podcast. So a normal day at the beach for me this week. Next week I will repeat the search and go with the 6 inch coil again, being more disciplined in what I dig for. As I've said before in episode 7, I am not expecting to pull out any modern jewellery or jars of modern coinage here, but I'm hoping to find something that links this site to the USAF seaplane site that was in full operation at the end of World War 1 till 1919. So some US military would be amazing or even an American silver quarter would make my day and make all the effort worthwhile. It's a big enough beach and will entertain me for months on end, so I'll keep you posted each week on progress. Also, I've had contact to schedule a call with Noctid to discuss the support of my pulse dive, which will not charge up. I have sent my availability for a call, but as of now, I'm still waiting on contact. But watch this space, I'll ensure to let you know of my experience. So this week, I'm looking at YouTube at two guys pulling out bottle after bottle from a site they had found using their metal detectors. And my eight-year-old son, who generally will watch with me, asks the question I have heard several times before, can a metal detector detect bottles? And like any good dad, I went full nerd and dropped some knowledge bombs on him, explaining the 101 on bottle hunting. And afterwards, I thought, now, that would be a great discussion for the podcast this week. So, can a metal detector detect a bottle? You all know the answer, and that is... No, of course not, but it can detect the accompanying rubbish or trash that normally comes with bottles. For example, the metal bottle cap or foil wrappings. Now, I've heard rumours that if the metal content in the glass is high enough, then a modern detector can sense the bottle, but this is unconfirmed and unproven. Because of that, I will disregard the possibility here. If you had ground radar, you would be able to detect bottles or bottle dumps, and these are normally out of the budget of an amateur metal detectorist. So what is the deal with our fascination with bottles and bottle dumps? Well, I think if you understand how they came about, you'll see the attraction. 
you only have to go back a hundred years to a time when country houses didn't have a city provided rubbish or trash for my American listeners collection service. Instead, they depended on privy pits or dump sites off to the edge of their property where they would dump all their refuse and buried away from prying eyes. If you consider that this was the time of snake oil salesmen and everything being sold in handmade glass bottles or clay pots, it meant that the majority of refuse didn't biodegrade and all that was left were bottles and clay pots. Now, if you also consider the collectability of some of these bottles resulting in a market for rare and good condition bottles, and conversely, a price driven by demand has led to some of these bottles being worth quite a significant amount of money. Now, you know why we like to find bottle dumps or privy pits. If you're not collecting them yourself, you're selling them on to a collector for profit, and there's nothing wrong with that in my book. So, how do you find a bottle dump with a metal detector? Well, if you assume you're actually looking for iron, steel or other base metals, then you will need a detector that can operate with a large coil at a lower frequencies to ensure significant sensitivity to detect the accompanying metal trash. However, if this setup is not within the capability of your detector, then use the best detector you were born with, and that's your eyes. Look out for patches of ground that have old broken pottery on the surface accompanied by stinging nettles, as stinging nettles thrive in ground that is rich in nitrogen and phosphates that were produced by the rotting trash. What to look for when digging bottles? In the main, you're looking for bottles that were produced by hand prior to the 1900s. Now, how do you identify a handmade bottle? Well, an embossed label with a maker's mark at the bottom is a good sign. Also, a visible pontil mark. The pontil mark is the mark at the bottom of the bottle where it is attached to the glass blower's pontil rod. This is a sure indication of a handmade bottle, and the presence of a mold seam indicates that the bottle was produced during the 19th century, where mass production was coming on stream. Some bottles to look out for. For me, any bottle that is blue indicates that this was a poison or medicine bottle. And if it actually says poison in embossed letters, then all the better. And finally, I would love to find a Hamilton bottle, which looks like a fat torpedo, but I'm afraid unless I travel further afield, I will never find one of those. If you have any interesting bottles to show, then please send them to me on any of my social media. Next up is this week's Tech Timeout on Response and Recovery. Okay, it's time for this week's Tech Time Out on recovery, speed, and response. Okay, let's talk about recovery and response. A lot of people mix these terms up, so let's start with a quick definition of each. Recovery speed is how quick your detector recovers after detecting a find, or if you imagine your detector is taking a snapshot of the ground and recovery speed is how quick it can take another snapshot of the ground, and that includes nulling out a find based on discrimination. With some detectors, you can adjust your recovery speed, but this is the equivalent of increasing the number of snapshots while decreasing the resolution of what can be seen. This manifests in the audible signal getting shorter and shorter as the te detector squeezes in more snapshots. For example, if your detector takes one snapshot a second, you will receive a long one second audible signal when metal is detected, with the audible signal only resetting when the metal detector recovers from the metal find. Now, say your detector takes four snapshots per second and detects a find in the first one, you will receive an audible tone for one quarter of a second while you receive nothing for the remainder three quarters of a second, resulting in a very short audible indication of a find. However, taking both scenarios again with a second find, 
In scenario one, when the second find is too close to be within the one second snapshot, you will miss the second find as your detector hasn't recovered while the coil is swinging over the second find and still presenting the first signal. While in the second scenario, the second find will be alerted on as the detector has recovered in time to present the audible signal, although this audible signal is quite short. In scenario number one, the second find is said to be target masked. It should be noted that the higher the recovery speed, the less sensitivity the detector has, resulting in deeper and iffy targets being missed. Now, talking about response, this is how quickly your metal detector can process the signal it gets from the coil and present it accordingly to the user. This lag may only be for fractions of a second but can cause target masking for the same reasons outlined in both scenarios above. For example, how can you detect a good find if your detector can't respond quick enough to an iron find adjacent to the good find? What I mean here is, if the response lag is too long, it can be a significant fraction of your swing and what will happen if you pass over a good find during the response time, the target will get masked out. This is a delicate balance that both the metal detectors and manufacturer need to make between too high a recovery speed and too long a response to ensure that sensitivity and depth is maintained while minimizing target masking. Two examples of detectors that have got this covered are the XP Deus and the MineLab Equinox 800, with several videos and examples online to demonstrate this. If you want to test both recovery speed and response, there is a very simple test you can do. Lay on the ground 5 coins approximately 3 inches apart and swing your coil quickly over the line of coins. You should hear a resounding beep 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 5 tones in quick succession. Now, you can either move the coins closer together or swing the coil faster. I prefer to maintain my swing speed as normal as possible as it will give me an in-the-field estimation of the reality of the situation. So my suggestion would be to move the coins closer together. Continue the test repeating till you can get to a point that you only hear four tones. This is the point the target masking is kicking in. Make a mental note of the distance between the coins. Now place an iron target beside one of the coins and record the number of tones. Generally you will find that depending on the size of the iron target you will only hear two coins and the iron. This is just for demo purposes and gives a great indication on how recovery speed and response affect target masking. You can adopt this method to your testbed, allowing you to calibrate yourself prior to a hunt and develop your audio muscle memory, if you know what I mean. So that's this week's Tech Timeout. Next, we discuss the news and views from the world of metal detecting and treasure hunting. Okay, everybody. Time for the news and views from the world of metal detecting. There's a great little article in the Cypress Mail this week, which looks to be a reprint of an article in the Sunday Mail previously, but outlining the legal wrangling between several government bodies and Enigma Recoveries. Enigma Recoveries is a London-based company that has funded the well-known recovery company Odyssey Marine Exploration in the recovery of large amounts of marine artifacts off the coast of Lebanon. This has resulted in a five-year-long battle for ownership. You can check out the links in the show notes for further details. Moving on to another great article in the Financial Times this week, an article I have seen several times this week posted across all forums and social media channels, and I suppose I'm not any different, and maybe you're familiar with it too, but the headline reads, Museums get behind metal detectorists in their quest for treasure. And about time too, if you ask me. Now saying that, the UK National Museum has always been the leading light in utilisation of amateur metal detectorists. And I would love it if many more national museums were as open. 
and I'm sure we can all name a few there. Anyways, the article goes on to discuss how archaeologists and metal detectorists are not always seen to be close friends, but despite this, the British Portable Antiquities Board outlined that the metal detectorists are responsible for approximately 95% of fines reported, of which 65% are jewellery. Check out the article, it's a great little read outlining the possibilities of what can happen when your government adopts a well-managed and inclusive system for metal detectorists. That's it for this week's news and views from the world of metal detecting. With this story and all the stories discussed this week, the original article links are in the show notes. Okay, I hope you like this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast, episode number eight. Follow us on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. If you want to contribute or have suggestions for topics for me to cover, pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. And don't forget to check out our website, www.TheMetalDetectingShow.com, for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee, just search for The Metal Detecting Show. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you all again next week. Get out there and happy hunting.